lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So in this chapter, Al-Tarebi starts discussing the conflict between the two souls, the tale of two souls, the Id versus the Yid. And a struggle it is, a conflict, and it almost appears as if there's two different parts to us, pulling us in two different opposite directions. And you know, the analogy that we can use that can help us understand the struggle, this conflict, these two voices that we have inside of us. Let's take it from our own personal experience. We have our superficial voice, the voice that pull, tells us, indulge, eat this junk food. And then there's a subtle voice that you have to really pay attention to listen, to hear. There's a subtle voice. There's many nutritionists will try to teach you and tell you that if you listen to your inner voice, that voice speaks to you. And it tells you which food is good for you, which food is not good for you, and when to stop eating. And... But most people don't listen to that voice. You don't give it the time of day. Because you have this, this siren, the loud siren that's pulling you. Powerful attraction. Instant gratification. The junkier the food, the tastier the food. Fat-free, taste-free. And then you have an inner subtle voice that if you listen to, you learn to listen to your body, your body is speaking to you. So you have two voices. And so too you have two souls. Just like you have junk food, you have junk lifestyle. You have a soul that's pulling you towards elevating you. It's pulling you towards like a flame that yearns to go up, to be whole, to be pure, to be holy, to be innocent, to be good. And then there's another soul that pulls you down, schleps you down. Have fun, instant gratification. The path of least resistance, the easy way out. Don't think, just do. Live for the moment, enjoy yourself. And don't think about the future or consequences, etc. So these are two powerful voices that speak to us. One appears to be louder, more insistent. But then there's the other voice which is more subtle which just is intense, very deep, very profound. We call the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Hara. The evil inclination, the positive inclination. These are not two angels that are residing in us. They, they are two different soul sources and speaking to us and communicating. And the good news is that we do have a different nature. We do have a deeper nature. And therefore, a person should not be taken by a superficial nature person should realize that there's more to us than meets the eye. Just like if you would have told the hundreds of thousands of Jews who have found their way back to Yiddishkeit today, if you would have told them a few years ago that they would be sitting and studying Torah and they would be sitting and doing mitzvot and loving their Jewishness, they would have bet a thousand to one that it's not going to happen. It's not me. This is not me. And yet, here they are. So what does that tell you? 
that our inner nature is we're not who we think we are. Thank God we're not who we think we are. There's so much more to us. There's a depth. There's a nature, our true nature. There's the nature that we think is our nature. And we say, this is me. This is the real me. But then there's a deeper nature, the real you, that's inner, that's deep down. But that's who you really are. And therefore, the good news is you don't have to become something that you aren't. You don't have to reinvent yourself. You don't have to be reborn again. You just have to reveal your true nature. Blow away the schmutz. Blow away the surface. And just allow your core, your essence, to emerge into the surface. So that's the good news. In fact, you have two souls. That you have that nature within you that wants to do good, that wants to be whole, that wants to do the right thing. That's, your, that's you. That's the real you. Just get out of the way and just let it emerge and let it surface, let it come out. So that's the encouragement. So these two souls are locked in battle. Each one wants to prevail. The godly soul wants the person to be completely godly and wholesome and good. Wants the person to always speak the truth. Think positive thoughts and wholesome thoughts. Think like a Jew. Speak like a Jew. Act like a Jew. That's what the godly soul wants. The godly soul doesn't compromise. The godly soul wants the person to be entirely healthy. 100%. Just like we want to be healthy. We want to be healthy 100%. We're not, we're not, we're not giving up a pinky. We're not compromising on one inch of our being. We want every part of us to be vibrant and healthy. Flush with health. So the godly soul is not giving up on a pinky. I'm not going to settle for 99.9%. The guy says, I want 100%. I want you to think like a Jew and to speak like a Jew and to act like a Jew and always be genuine and authentic and good and deep and profound and wholesome and, and is always pulling us in that direction, inspiring us. And won't settle for any compromise for anything less. While the divine, the animal soul is, is pulling us in the opposite, opposite direction. Now, they're... they're Again, from my own personal, personal experience, there are millions of people who have successfully taken upon themselves to eat healthy, and to lead healthy lifestyles. It's a, it's a commitment. It takes discipline. It takes courage, strength, persistence. But there are millions of people who, who have done it, have forsworn junk food, and who lead a healthy lifestyle. And are very happy, very content. Because in this struggle between the godly soul and the animal soul, there's only one way to win the struggle. And that is for the godly soul to win. The animal soul cannot win. If the animal soul wins, when we live like an animal, and we live for the moment, and we just live a life of indulgence and instant gratification, it feels good for the moment, but... Feels, we feel empty inside. The godly soul can never settle, can never be satisfied with such a lifestyle. Well, the reverse could be true. A person who has the discipline, who forswears junk food and eats healthy, you feel like a million dollars. You feel great. Yes, it's discipline, but it's worthwhile. The sacrifice is worthwhile because you're listening to that inner voice. When you listen to that inner voice, you feel great. And the same is true with our spiritual life. When a person forswears drunk lifestyle that's all pervasive and all around us 
and the sirens that are constantly pulling us to all this type of life, all these lifestyle choices, when a person is able to listen to that inner voice and follow the dictates of the godly soul, the Yetzirah, even the animal soul inside of us learns to be very happy, content. It's a wholesome lifestyle. You sleep like a baby at night. It feels good. Yes, you have to sacrifice, but look what you get in return. You're listening that, to that inner voice. What's good for you? But the reverse could never, could never work. So the only way to resolve this conflict is for the godly soul to win. But then we left off last week, and it gets even more interesting than that. Because the godly soul, the divine soul, which is the divine, what makes us Jewish is we have a Jewish neshama. We have that divine spark, divine essence. The godly soul is not satisfied with just vanquishing the ego or the natural soul. No. It's much more ambitious than that. The divine soul wants to revolutionize, transform the animals. That's why Jews are revolutionaries. A Jew is not satisfied with just... It, starts all, it all starts with a microcosm within because the godly soul, which is the Jew inside of us, is not happy with just winning the battle and vanquishing the enemy. It wants to create a re- revolution. And that is, it wants the animal soul to also start loving God and godly things. That the animal soul should also start pulling towards godliness. And this is a revolution. It's one thing that the godly soul is attracted and wants holiness and purity and depth and genuineness and authenticity and wholesomeness. But the animal soul, the thrill-seeking part within us, the ego, is just looking for fun. It's just a bundle of energy. It wants to have a good time. How do you get the animal souls to start loving God? As we say in the Shema every day, love your God with both hearts, with the right heart and the left heart. It's not enough that the godly soul loves God. The godly soul wants the animal soul to also start loving God. The animal soul is out of the picture. The godly soul feels incomplete. So it's very ambitious. Now, how do you get the animal soul to love God? How do you get your ego to want to do good? Ego wants to be selfish. How can you get the ego to want to be selfless? It's a revolution. And the answer is, because at the essence, what is the animal soul? What is the ego? It's just a bundle of energy. It wants to have fun, excitement, thrill, entertainment. It just wants to have a good time. What is fun? Naturally, instinctively, it associates fun with materialism, with instant gratification, with all the superficial external things in life that really don't give you happiness and don't buy you happiness and don't give you anything. It just allows you to suffer in comfort. (laughs) So really, all it wants to have is fun. Energy, life. What's a person looking for in life? A person wants life, passion, excitement. That's what a person is looking for in life. A person is not looking for materialism per se is, is a corpse. What's materialism? Materialism is nothing. It's dead. A person is not looking for the material. A person is looking for the passion, the life, the vitality, the excitement, the fun. If you were able to indulge in materialism and it was dead, it was lifeless, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't have any appeal to you. People are looking for constant entertainment, something new, exciting, unpredictable, interesting. People are always looking for that energy. And they're coming up short. Because the truth is, there is no energy. 
There is no passion. There is no vitality. There is no life. People are jaded. And you could live as you please and do as you want. And no boundaries, no limits. Anything goes. You make up, create your own lifestyle, do whatever you want. You're jaded. Spark is gone. Innocence is gone. There's no life. There's no vitality. Where are you going to find life? There's only one source for life. The source for life is Hashem. Anything connected with Hashem is alive. When you study Torah, it gives you life. When you do a mitzvah, you're connected with the source of life. When you're giving tzedakah, you're bringing life. You're alive. So you look into the eyes of someone who's connected to Torah and mitzvah, you see a vibrant, dynamic, passionate, exciting and excited human being, a person who's alive, who's whole, who's fresh. The eyes are sparkling, there's innocence, there's something to look forward to. You're coming from somewhere, you're going somewhere, there's a connection, there's a purpose to life, there's a meaning to life. The person is alive. And that grabs the attention of the ego, of the animal soul. Because what does the ego want? What does the animal soul? It just wants life. And when they see how alive the Jew is, when the Jew is connected to Torah and Mitzvah, they see the person is so excited. He says, listen, I don't understand what this is all about. It makes no sense to me. Why is this person excited? He's running to Shul and he's excited. It makes no sense to me. He's not running to Las Vegas. He's not running. I don't understand it, but I know I like it. I can feel it. I'm a bundle of energy. I like this energy. I love this excitement. I love this joy, this, this passion, this, this, this aliveness, vitality, this vigor. And that's what draws him. That's what attracts him. And that's how you turn around the ego, you turn around the animal soul. The animal soul, you harness that powerful energy. The animal is like, it's like an animal. If you harness the animal, you can plow a field, you can do tremendous accomplishments. The animal can do things that the person can never do. So when you can harness this energy, this life, there's more energy in Wall Street than any synagogue. When you can harness that energy and harness it to goodness, to godliness, then you can accomplish tremendous things. And that's the goal of the godly soul. The godly soul is not happy that the person is in touch with his godly soul and is in touch with his true nature and allows his true nature, his true core and essence to emerge. And he subdues his ego and his animal. No, that's not his goal. His goal is much more ambitious. His goal is nothing less than the total transformation of the enemy, that the enemy becomes a friend. He says, I want the godly soul on board, the animal soul on board. I want every part of the person to be pulling all roads to lead to Jerusalem. I want every part of the person pulling in the direction of godliness and holiness. Then and only then will I be satisfied. So, so it's a total transformation. So it's not enough that he subdues and he's in control of the person and the person is 100% behaviorally. The person is, doing one, is acting and behaving and thinking and speaking and acting appropriately. But his inside, he's pulling in a different direction, but he subdues his urges and his instincts. The godly soul wants something far greater than that. The godly soul wants that the person shouldn't even be tempted to do something wrong. The person should be tempted to do the right thing. Imagine. Imagine that passion, that zeal, that zest that people have when they run to Las Vegas. They should have that same zeal and zest to run to show. That's what the godly soul wants. Nothing less. Total revolution. Something totally unexpected. Because at the, at the essence, the, godly, the animal soul is just a neutral force. It's not inherently negative. It just wants to have fun. 
if you can harness and sublimate and guide, guide the animal soul and show it that real fun, you want to have real fun, you want to have real thrill, real joy, real excitement, real passion, give tzedakah, do a selfless act, do a kind act, be good, do the right thing. Do t- learn Torah, take your vitamin T, learn Torah, do mitzvahs, and then you'll see, you'll really feel alive and wholesome and you'll feel, feel wonderful. There is a, uh, one of the mitzvahs in the Torah, it's called the, the law of all the entire Torah is the mitzvah of the red heifer. And the mitzvah of the red heifer is that you take the red heifer, after it's slaughtered, you burn the red heifer, and the ashes. You take the ashes and you sprinkle with living water. You take the ashes, you mix it with living water, with well spring water, and you sprinkle it on the, you sprinkle it on the person who's contaminated, came in contact with death, and the person becomes pure on the third day and the seventh day. And then the person becomes pure and is allowed to re-enter into the, into the, into the temple. Now, what's the concept behind the mitzvah? So Hasidus explains the animal, especially the red animal, represents the, the hot-blooded, passionate animal we all have within us. It just wants to have fun, it wants to have a good time. The mitzvah is when you burn something. What happens when you burn something? What are you left with? What's the ash? The ash represents the essence. Because that's what's left. After everything else is gone, everything else, everything else is destroyed, the indestructible, the essence is left, and that's the ashes. In other words, what's the essence of the, of the animal soul? When you strip away everything else, what are you left with? Well, what's really its essence? It's just a neutral energy, just an energy that wants to have fun, just wants to have a good time, just wants to enjoy life, wants to have pleasure, pleasure-seeking. And so the mitzvah is not to destroy the red heifer. It's to keep the ash, that part of the red heifer, that part, the ash, its essence, its desire, its passion, its drive, its being a bundle of energy. That's wonderful. Don't destroy that. But harness it. Take that ash and, and take that, that, that drive and harness it and teach the animal that the source for life, what are you looking for? What do you want in life? Passion. There's only one address for that passion. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Everything else is just trying to copy. A poor copy is trying to create a sense of excitement and life. But it's a dead end. There's nothing there. You want real life that's sustainable, that's real that grows and deepens and intensifies, there's only one address, and that is the source of life. By connecting to the source of life, by doing things, by doing something Jewish every day of your life, and studying a little Torah, doing a mitzvah, that will give you life, that will give you vitality, that will give you passion, that will give you excitement, that will give you everything you're looking for. That's what you're looking for. If you're able to show, to educate, and show the animal soul, the ego, this is the real you. What are you looking for in life? What do you want? What are you yearning for? You want fun and passion and excitement? This is where you're going to find it. Come here. Come with me. I'll give you, you'll get exactly what you're looking for. Once the animal it clicks, it clicks, and the animal gets it, the ego soul gets it, then your nature, naturally, you start enjoying godly things. And then you're not even tempted to do something wrong. You're only tempted to do the right thing. That's where we left off last week. But then it gets even more interesting. Middle of page 143, and now he's going to explain that if we're talking about the essence of the animal soul, what is the essence of the animal soul? 
It's the drive for pleasure, the search for pleasure. As Freud would say, it's the sexual drive, the search for pleasure. And it's interesting that man is the only creature in the universe that has this insatiable drive. Man is the only creature in the universe that suffers from addictions. When was the last time you met an overeating cow or uh, an addicted dog or a drunk, overdosed cat? Only people are addicted. Where does addictions come from? All addictions come from because we have this insatiable drive, insatiable hunger. And this is what, why all societies have created all these laws and rules to keep a person's hungers in check. Because otherwise, if society would have no taboos, if society would have no boundaries, it would just consume us and destroy us. We couldn't lead productive lives. People were just consumed by their unbridled uh, passions. And Freud, basically, and came to the conclusion that based on this reality, that man really is a beast. That's what man is. And all these limitations are just artificial constructs. And if a person tries to impose upon himself a lifestyle from the outside in, superimpose upon himself a lifestyle that's really unnatural, that's the sort, that creates neurosis, and a healthy person is someone who gets in touch with the beast inside of himself and acknowledges it and doesn't try to pretend to be something that he isn't. Yeah, that's in a very simplistic way, in a nutshell, the whole Freudian thrust. And that's really just the, the conclusion that most religions came to. Man is born in sin. You might as well quit while you're behind. And the only hope is have faith and salvation. And... Um, this entire world is, a, is an illusion, a maya, as the Eastern mystics like to call it. Comes along Judaism. Looks at the same facts, the same person, the same reality. And comes to an exact opposite conclusion. So on the contrary, this proves that man is the holiest of all the creatures. That man is the ultimately is created in the image of God. That man is divine, has something divine inside divine spark and that explains why man has this insatiable hunger and desire because we're yearning for something undefined since we have a divine spark inside of us that's infinite that's undefined therefore this is what we're hungering for we ourselves don't know what we're hungering for something gets lost in the translation as the Baal Shem said when a Jew is hungry he thinks he's hungry for that juicy piece of ripstick or for that whatever it is filet mignon or this, but the truth is, what's, what's he really hungry for? He's really hungry for that divine sparks. And he's hungry. But something gets lost in the translation. So he thinks he's hungry for something material, for something external, physical. But he's really hungry for something godly. And therefore, nothing external, nothing material could possibly satisfy that hunger. The more you indulge, the more you try to satisfy the hunger, it only pours kerosene in the flame, you just get hungry and hungry the less satisfied you are, the hungrier you get. Because that's not what you're looking for. That never was what you were looking for. You think that you're looking for something materialistic, something external. That has nothing to do with it. What you're really looking for is for something divine, something undefined, something godly. So on the contrary, 
The fact that man has addictions, the fact that man has his insatiable hunger, doesn't prove that man is a beast and that man is essentially redeemable and that man is born in sin and that it's hopeless and it's all one big darkness and illusion and my. On the contrary, it proves that we are the whole, this is the holiest of all the worlds. Man is the holiest of all of God's creatures. Man is unique, created the image of God. It's freedom of choice. Because what we really, our essence proves that our essence is spiritual and godly. That's who we really are. We are godly beings. That's who we really are. That's the only explanation why we have these, these insatiable hungers. Nothing could satisfy. It makes no sense. Animals, beasts, brutes, bond once a year, twice a year. They do it. They have to, and that's over. Only man has this insatiable hunger and desire because, on the contrary, it just proves that we are essentially godly. And therefore, when a person realizes that this is your essence, your essence is truly divine, and that's where all this hunger is coming from, and this pleasure, this pleasure-seeking principle, mind everything that we, this is what motivates everything that we do, we're looking for that ultimate pleasure. If you realize what it's all about, that at the essence you're really godly, and that's really what we're looking for, then it's a core transformation then it's not just something that I'm doing Jewish. I'm behaving in a Jewish way. I'm thinking like a Jew. I'm speaking like a Jew. I'm acting like a Jew. Or even feeling something Jewish. It's much deeper than that. It's, it's a total transformation. It's a core transformation. That your very essence, which is your pleasure, the desire for pleasure, the pleasure principle, is really the motivating factor behind everything that a person does. Ultimately, you're looking for that satisfaction for that high. You're looking for that pleasure. Whatever you do, everyone has different activities that give them pleasure. A thinking person, thinking something, understanding something, this is what gives them pleasure. And what's the payoff? Everything we do has a payoff. We're looking for that payoff. It gives us pleasure. People have different things that give them pleasure. One person is making money, another person is it's, it's, it's acquiring power, and another person fame, another person is making a difference, another person is helping people. Every, ultimately, Pleasure is the motivating factor behind every, everything that a person does. That's the payoff. That's what we're looking for. So that drive is really the underlying drive of, of everything that we do. So once a person realizes the root and the source of that drive, that it really comes from that divine spark that we have inside of us, a divine essence, that we are truly godly and divine, once you realize that, then it total, totally transforms your whole being. Your whole essence is transformed then everything you are is godly. Your whole being is godly. It's not just you're doing Jewish, but you're feeling Jewish, your being is Jewish, your whole essence is Jewish. Everything, and it gives you tremendous pleasure. Until you reach a level where everything Jewish gives you a tremendous pleasure. And that's the ultimate level. And that's the ambitious goal of the divine soul. The divine soul is not satisfied in vanquishing the animal soul, the ego, and subduing it. That, that's nothing. That's just the olive base. That's just the beginning. It wants something much, much more ambitious than that. It wants to turn around the animals. Firstly, by harnessing its energy and the deeper level, a total core transformation with a very pleasure-seeking part of the animal soul that's seeking all of these is totally turned around and sublimated where the animal soul, the ego, finds tremendous, intense pleasure in godly things. We're studying Torah, it becomes the most supreme, pleasurable activity. We're doing a mitzvah, it becomes the most supreme, pleasurable activity. We're being selfless and kind and doing the right thing. And giving tzedakah, 
and helping becomes the most supreme pleasurable activity. This is, this is the ultimate goal. So the godly soul is quite ambitious. The Jew is quite ambitious. And that's the difference, by the way, between Judaism and all other religions. All other religions are happy to keep to themselves. The Indian smoking peyote, the Buddha sitting on top of the mountaintop. He's sitting for himself. I don't bother you. You don't bother me. It's a free world. And therefore, there's no, you know, you've heard of anti-Buddhism and anti-Indianism. You know, you, you live in your corner. Anti-Amishism, you live in your corner. I live in my corner. I don't bother you. You don't bother me. And we all get along. It's only the Jew that somehow gets into everyone's way. Why? Because the Jew is not happy sitting in his little corner in the Holy Land of Israel. And leave my life. I'm leading my life. You live your life. Don't bother me. You don't bother me. That's not the Jew. The Jew, the Jew won't let anyone, anyone alone. Because the Jew is so ambitious. What's true in the microcosm is also true in the macrocosm. Just like in our own miniature world, which is really a reflection of the whole universe. The godly soul, the, the, the Jew within us, the divine spark, will not settle for nothing less than total transformation. So too, the Jew will not settle for anything less than the global transformation. That the entire world becomes godly and transformed, where the nations of the world will start worshiping Hashem, will take all that energy, that powerful energy that God gave the 70 nations of the world, and they have a powerful energy, in many ways even more powerful than the Jews. It's like this animal energy, powerful energy. And if we can harness, the Jews' mission is to harness that energy, where the nations of the world will enthusiastically endorse and acknowledge Hashem, and worship Hashem, and become good Noahides and righteous Gentiles. So the Jew will not settle and was not happy until he achieves a total transformation. And we have a word for this. It's called Mashiach. Mashiach is the total transformation of the world. When the entire world, all six billion people, will live up to their potential and become righteous Gentiles, become Noahite, like the descendants of Noah, and will lead moral, ethical, and spiritual and godly lives, will acknowledge Hashem. And until we achieve that total transformation, nothing less can satisfy the Jew. That's why the Jew is a revolutionary. He's constantly creating revolutions. Because that's the mission of the Jew, to do the impossible, to create revolutions, to do something that's so far-fetched, to take something that on the surface you don't see any connection, and yet to reveal how at the core and at the essence all roads are leading to Jerusalem. So now you can understand how the two souls are really locked in battle. This is, this, is a, this is a serious battle. Because the animal soul is, is, is going to resist. Is not happy. At least on the surface, doesn't appear happy. It's fighting it. Tooth and nail, every step of the way. I want to be an animal. What are you, what are you teaching me? To be, to be a mensch? I want to be true to my nature. I'm an animal. I want to act like an animal, live like an animal. And be a genuine animal. And the Jew says, no, I'm not going to let you. <laughs> so it's a big struggle. It's a fight. Serious clash. Okay, let's continue inside. Uh, middle of page 143. This transformation of the animal souls. This transformation of the animal souls left to love God, to love of God, entails rising to attain to the level of Ahava Rabbah, abundant love. A love surpassing even the level of the powerful love like fiery questions that was mentioned earlier. This level of love is what the scripture describes as Ahava Bitanogim, a love which expresses delights. It is the experience of delight and godliness that is a 
foretaste of the world to come. Since man's reward reward in the world to come consisting of delighting in godliness. This delight is felt in the brain containing chachma, wisdom, and intelligence, which delights in perceiving and knowing God, commensurate with the capacity of one's intelligence and wisdom. The greater one's grasp of godliness, the greater his delight. This delight is the level of water and seed, example, light that is sown in the holiness of the divine soul, which transforms to good the element of water in the animal soul, from which the lust for physical pleasure had previously arisen. This means that the element of water in the animal soul, which had previously expressed itself as a desire for physical pleasures, now expresses itself as a love of God, having been transformed by the divine soul's love of God. So there's two levels of love. There is a love of God, which he calls like a fiery love. And that love flows over, um, flows over from the heart. Into the, into the ego, it even affects the, the ego soul. And that's the love that grabs the attention of the ego soul, the animal soul, because that energy, that, 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 that passion, because ultimately that's what the ego soul wants, just wants passion, life, vitality. And when it's, it's affected, when it sees the godly soul so excited and so passionate about being Jewish, about the, he wants, he's affected by it. He can't, help, he can't help but be affected by it. And suddenly he also starts desiring and wanting and and yearning for godly things. But then you reach a higher level of love, which is the love of pleasure, of delight. We totally transform your entire being, your essence, your, your very pleasure principle. Will you pleasure, what gives you delight? What, what you, when you realize that, what are you yearning for? What are you looking for? What do you um, want in life? You're really looking for something insatiable, something undefined, something godly. And that's why that desire is insatiable. Because nothing superficial can possibly fulfill it. The only thing that will satisfy that desire, the only thing that will satisfy man's spirit, and soothe man's spirit, and satisfy your spirit, and make you feel whole inside, and nourished, and nurtured, and feel great, and feel like a million dollars, and give you real pleasure, nachas, real pleasure, is godliness. Godly things. Torah, mitzvah, good deeds. That's forever. That's eternal. That's real. That's substance. Everything else is nothing. Here today, gone tomorrow, instantly forgettable, instant gratification, instantly forgettable, meaningless, not a shame. And so that's the, that's the ultimate, ultimate transformation. Continue. It is similarly written in Eskayim, Portal 50, Chapter 3, on the authority of the Zohar, that the evil of the animal soul is transformed and becomes perfect good, good like the good inclination itself when it is stripped of its unclean garments, meaning the mundane pleasures in which it had been clothed. The Yetzirah, evil inclination, consists of a powerful drive, an appetite for whatever it perceives, perceives as good and desirable. This drive is neutral and may be steered in any direction. However, being clothed in a corporal body, it inclines towards physical pleasures. These lusts become unclean garments for the animal soul's drive. By steering it away from physical pleasures toward an appreciation of spiritual pleasures, the divine soul strips the Yesahara of its unclean garments and clothes it, clothes it in pure garments so that it may apply its powerful appetite for pleasures to godly, holy matters. This, then, is the divine soul's desire that it create, by means of its intellectual faculties, 
a fear of love of God so powerful it's to transform the animal soul to good. The divine soul further desires that similarly all other emotions, all other emotions of the heart, which are offshoots of fear and love, be dedicated solely to God. Thus far, the Altar Rebbe has discussed the divine soul's desire for dominion over the mind and heart. He now goes on to speak of the other organs of the body. Also, the entire faculty of speech that is in the mouth and the thought that is in the mind be filled exclusively with the divine soul's garments of thought and speech, namely thoughts of God and his Torah, in which he would speak all, in which he would speak all day his mouth never ceasing from studying, and the faculty of action vested in his hands and the rest of his 248 organs, this faculty being the third of the garments of the divine soul, be engaged in the fulfillment of the mitzvah, that he utilizes his ability to act solely in the observance of mitzvah. In summary, the, the divine soul desires that his faculties and garments pervade the body entirely and exclusively. This goes against the entire ethos of, we, of, of the modern times that, that the way the path in life is compromised. A little of this, a little of that. Nishtahin, nishtaher. Parav. But that's not... That's not a solution. You can't avoid the conflict. The only solution is wholeness and completion. Because the godly soul wants to be whole. And again, we know it from our own personal experience. We all want to be healthy. When it comes to our health, which matters most to us, we will not compromise. Not one iota. We refuse to compromise. The very same people, when it comes to their spiritual life, compromise so easily. Compromise a principle here, compromise a little conviction here, compromise a little there. After all, nobody is perfect. You have to make accommodations in life. You got to be practical. You got to be an adult. You got to be realistic. You can't overreach. Yet, when it comes to our own personal health, we refuse to compromise. If a doctor told you, you know, listen, you should be happy that you're 99% healthy, so you say you'll be missing a pinky. Big deal. Right? You would fire him in a second. This is a doctor. You would probably uh, sue him, fire him. What kind of doctor is this? What do, what do you mean, I'm giving up your pinky? It's a, really, it's your, my pinky you're giving up. I'm not giving up a pinky. I'm not compromising on a pinky. It's only a pinky. You can live without it. It's not so vital. What are you talking about? I'm not compromising on one iota. Not one, one part of it. I want every part of me to be vibrant and healthy. And if, God forbid, your health is challenged or threatened, you'll do anything that's humanly possible and beyond to regain your health. You'll bankrupt yourself. you undergo painful procedures. There's nothing in the world you wouldn't do, even though it's not a logical position. After all, everyone we know has health issues. Nobody is perfect. Just walk down the street, take a look. Nobody's perfect. Everyone has issues. All the doctors are thriving. But it doesn't matter. Logic, not logic. It's not a logical position. But it's, it's a position that comes from our gut. Our gut instincts tells us we refuse to compromise. We want 100% and nothing less with it. Where does this come from? This comes from because God 
is hardwired into our being. God is absolute. God is perfect. God is whole. God is not a, an abstraction, an ephemeral reality. God is our essence. There is nothing else. All there is is God. So therefore, since God is so hardwired into our very being, into our very essence, our very core, that's why we have this uncompromising position. We're also looking for wholeness. We want wholeness, we want perfection, we want, we want it all. And we refuse to settle. And refuse to compromise. And what's true in the physical level is also true in the spiritual level. The godly soul refuses to compromise. I'm not going to settle. 80% is not good enough. But I'm orthodox, I'm ultra-orthodox, I'm this, this label, that label. I'm 90% Jewish, uh, religious, I'm 80%, I'm 50%. The godly soul doesn't know from any of these labels and any of these... It's not 90%, it's not 99%, it's 100%. The godly soul wants it all. Wants the person to be totally connected. Every part of the person. All 248 limbs and 365 veins and every fiber of your being and every bone in your body. And every part of you, in thought, speech, action, emotional, intellectual, your will, your pleasure. Not only your godly soul that also the will and pleasure and heart and soul of your animal soul, your ego soul, it wants to fully engage every part of you, every part of you should be pulling in one direction. And it will not settle. The godly soul is restless. The godly soul is constantly stirring up. It's restless and will not settle until it reaches its ambitious goal. And that's why the Jew is so unsettled. That's why the Jew is so unhappy. The Jew is so filled with rage and anger. That's why Jews practically invented psychology. Because we have this inner tension that just won't let go. Most psychologists are Jews, most of the patients are Jewish. <laughs> because. The same person. <laughs> <laughs> the same person. <laughs> I heard this from Jeff last week. Two, two, two Freudians meet, and one of them greets the other. He says, Good morning. When he leaves, the other one says, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> See, the, the, the Eskimos have 27 words for snow. The Jews have 31 words for neurotic. <laughs> because our soul is restless. We, we want it all. We, we can't settle. A Jew can't be happy just leading a materialistic life. Having his barbecue, working. It's just not, it's just not happening. It just doesn't do it. Therefore, he's constantly, he's constantly creating revolutions. He, has, he doesn't know himself what he's looking for, what he wants, what he's driving the whole world crazy. But he's constantly driving everyone nuts because he can't, he can't let it alone because he has this restlessness inside of him. He has this insatiable yearning that must engage with everyone. He must engage the entire world and ultimately will affect the entire The world affects the world. The Jew affects the entire world. One Jew from his grave is still influencing 2 billion people. Three Jews changed the whole 20th century, for better or for worse. Marx, uh, Freud, uh, um, Einstein, for better or for worse. Betty Friedan. <laughs> A Jew is constantly creating revolutions. And uh, so this whole approach to life of compromising, of settling, don't do anything 100%. Do, you know, you have to accommodate. You have to compromise. A little of this, a little of that. That's not the response. That's not, the resol- that's not how you're going to resolve this conflict. 
You're only going to resolve the conflict when the godly soul, when there's a total transformation from within, from the very core and essence. That's the only thing that will satisfy. Not only, now he's going to explain, not only will that satisfy the godly soul, but now he's going to reveal the secret. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy the, the ego. Because the truth is that even the ego and the Yetzirah, what, does, what do they really want? What are they really looking for? What's their purpose? You know, we live in a false world. And the whole idea that there's a conflict is also part of the lie. Because the truth is, deep down, there is no conflict. Because the ego is also working for the same, is working also for God. But behind, behind enemy lines. But he's really also a friend. And the Zohar gives an unbelievable parable. The Zohar says, gives a parable of a king that wanted to test his prince. The prince was going to be the future king, and he wanted to test his prince. So what does he do? He hires the most expensive courtesan, the most expensive call girl in his kingdom to seduce the prince. Now, she cannot tell him that she's working for the king otherwise it defeats the whole purpose she has to do her job she has to pull out all the stops and she has to do her job she has to seduce him and she can't even hint him that she's really on his side but in her heart of hearts she's begging she's pleading she's praying please show some strength show some courage show you true colors show that you're worthy of being the king's child, of being the prince. Show me who you really are. Don't, don't fall for me. Be strong. Stand up to me. But she can't say that. She can't breathe it. can't even hint it. And for all appearances, it's a tremendous, tremendous test. But the inner dynamics are totally hidden and concealed. But that's what's really going on here. What's really going on here is that she's praying that he shouldn't fall for her. And this totally changes this Zohar this illuminates for us it totally changes how we look at this world instead of looking at this world as being a dark negative place with anti-Semitism and the whole world is against the Jew and, and, and so much darkness and there's so much opposition there's so many obstacles and distractions and pitfalls and curves from left field how is it possible where are we going to get the strength to overcome this, this, this tidal wave of negativity how can the little light overcome so much darkness? But once you realize that deep down, the darkness, the negativity is really on your side. It has a funny way of showing it. But it's really, it's really praying for you. It's pulling for you. The negativity is just there to evoke a powerful response from you. It's just to test you. It's just to bring out that, summon that inner strength, that reservoirs of strength that's hidden inside of you, to bring it to the surface, to bring out that courage and that strength of character and that decisiveness and forcefulness that enable, will enable you to do the right thing. So everyone is rooting for you. Instead of looking at the world as a hostile place, as a place that's, that's, that's an opposition to everything that's holy and godly and good, and you wonder, how can godliness take root in such a world that's so hopelessly godless, so hopelessly corrupt and bankrupt? It's, it's the exact opposite of the way it appears to be. 
That's part of the con. This world is a con. Part of the lie is that, that the world appears to be a materialistic place. That is also part of the con. Don't be taken in by it. Don't trust anything that's happening in this world. Especially the fact that the world appears to be a dark, materialistic place. It's a lie. The truth is this world is fertile territory for godliness because everything in the world is really rooting for godly. Not only the overt, those parts in the world that are encouraging that encourage a person, that elevate a person, that stimulate a person for godliness, but even the negativity and the opposition is really also rooting for you and, and it's trying to strengthen you. So when the Jew realizes this, then you look at something differently. When you see negativity and opposition, remember, it's not, it's, don't, don't take it at face value. It's not about negativity, it's not opposition. It's, on the, it's here to strengthen me. It's here to fortify me. It's here to prove me to bring out, to develop my potential. Everything is rooting for my success, my spiritual success. To lead a godly life and to do the right thing. But the animal soul derived from sleep by desires the very opposite. It desires that the body be pervaded with its faculties and its thoughts, speech, and action. But the animal soul desires this for man's benefit in order that he prevail over her and vanquish her, as in the parable of the harlot related in the Holy Zohar. In the parable, a king desired to test the moral strength of his only son. He had a most charming and clever woman brought before him. Explained to her the purpose of the test, he ordered her to exert every effort to, to seduce the crown prince. For the test to be valid, the supposed harlot had to use all her charms and guile without betraying her mission in the slightest way. Any imperfection on her part would mean disobedience and the failure of her mission. However, while she uses all her seductive powers, she inwardly desires that the prince should not succumb to them. So too in our case, the Kalipa itself desires the man, that man overcome it and not permit himself to be led astray. The entire stratagem is solely for man's benefit. So, <laughs> nothing is the way it seems to be. Your enemy is not your enemy. What seems to be your enemy is really your friend, but it's behind the scenes. That's why the Talmud says that the Satan, the Shem Shemayim, Satan, the Shem Shemayim, the Skaven, everything that Satan does is really for the sake of heaven. So it appears to be that there's a Satan, there's a prosecutor, and there's a defender, and, and this, everything in this world is filled with conflict and tension. And, and then you discover, on a deeper level, you discover nothing is the way it appears to be, on the contrary. The Satan is also an angel from God. He's doing his job. That's his mission. He's a holy angel. He's doing his mission. It's like the, uh, it was a Hasidic Rebbe in Eastern Europe, Rabbi Naftali of Rapture said. He was very sharp, very witty. He was a little boy. It was once in the winter, and, you know, he, he was lazy to get up in the morning, early in the morning. It was a winter, Russian, cold Russian winter, and his father was encouraging him to go to bed. And he refused to wake up, to come to 7 o'clock minion. So his, uh, it was cold. He was under the... Uh, so his father says, why don't you learn from the Yetzirah? The evil inclination. The Yetzirah is up and br- up bright and early. So as soon as you walk up, the Yetzirah is already up and working. It's, it's, <laughs> it's already at the desk. <laughs> We're fully operating and telling you, whispering in the ear, don't get up, don't get up. Stay under the covers. It's so comfortable under the covers. Why go into the cold Russian winter? So the clever boy responds. He says, listen, that." The Yetzirah doesn't have a Yetzirah. <laughs> I have a Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is doing his job. He doesn't have a Yetzirah to tell him not to. So he's up bright and early. I didn't have a Yetzirah. 
I would also be upright and early, but we have a Yetzirah. Man is the only creature in the universe that has a Yetzirah. So, but once you realize that on a deeper level, there is no conflict. On a deeper level, there is nothing else but God. Everything is godly. Even what appears to be negative is really godly. Because it's all pushing in the same direction. It's pushing a person towards godliness. The purpose of the negativity is not for the sake of negativity. It's not just for the sake of making life an obstacle course and making life so difficult and so tough. The purpose is, it's all there for the... The purpose is, the goal is positive. It's to strengthen the person, to test the person, to bring out the best in the person, and to prove to a person what, what he's really made up. When the, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You discover that person's true metal. The person is tested in fire. When you're tested in, in true fire, then the best comes out. And that's how you refine pure gold and silver. How do you get pure gold and pure silver? Silver and gold come with a lot of junk. You have to go through the fire. When you go through the fire, the furnace, and you're tested, then you get rid of all the dross, all the junk, and you're left with that pure chunk of silver, that pure chunk of gold. So it's all for our benefit to solidify us, to strengthen us. And once you realize that, that the negative, don't take the negativity and face value. Everything comes from Hashem. It's not like you have two forces, the way the Christians understand it. You have the, the God of light and the God of darkness and Satan and, 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 and good and they're, they're in battle and evil is absolute and good is absolute. In Judaism, no. In Judaism, it's not like that. Even evil, deep down, the purpose of evil is good. It wants, it's only there to test you. Of course, it's a temporary phenomenon because once a person is tested and the person passes the test, and once a person realizes that evil really is, is really your friend, is really, is really pushing for your success, then it's no longer a test. Then it's no longer evil. When Mashiach will come, Hashem will lift the veil. Once they lift the veil and everything is clear, everything is crystal clear, and you realize that everything in the universe is pushing you in one direction, then there's no evil inclination anymore. Then, 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 then there's no longer a challenge. But now we have a veil, so we don't realize that evil appears to be evil and good is good. And, and, but the truth is, it, we, firstly, we know how the battle will end. And the struggle between good and evil, godliness is going to win. Truth is going to win. One way or the other, by hook or by crook. There's no question the Mashiach is coming. That's not a question. That godliness will triumph, totally triumph. The question is how we get there, how quickly we get there. But that we will get there, that's not, that's not even an option. That's not a question. It doesn't say maybe Mashiach will come if we merit. Mashiach has definitely come. One way or the other. So with goodness ultimately will triumph. Because the whole purpose of evil is just really, it's just a stepping stone. It's just a purpose to test the person, to strengthen the person. It's only there to strengthen us. It has no independent reality. And the moment it fulfills its purpose, it ceases to exist. Mashiach will come, there will be no evil. Hashem will lift the veil, we'll realize, we'll sense that everything is there, we'll feel how everything is there, help it. Every, everyone is our friend. Former enemies will suddenly appear to be friends. We see it in the world today. Before Judaism, you were arrested in Russia if you practiced Judaism. And today, that very same government is supporting, encouraging, and Yiddishkeit is thriving and flourishing in the former Soviet Union. What appear to be enemies suddenly turned into friends. So the world is, ultimately, the world is changing, the world will change. And because the inner purpose, 
the inner purpose is there's one goal and there's one purpose. There's one reality. There's no other reality but God. The ultimate reality is light. That's the substance. Darkness is just a void. It makes a lot of noise. It's distracting. And it creates confusion. Part of the confusion is that people take the darkness literally and are very impressed by the darkness. But when you realize that everything has a divine spark, including the evil, and ultimately it has a divine purpose, then evil loses its whole hold, loses its force. As the Baal said, the word for Hebrew, for sin, is chet. How do you spell chet? Chet, tet aleph. But you don't hear the aleph. You don't pronounce the aleph. You just pronounce the chet and the tet. Chet, chet. The aleph is silent. What's the aleph? Aleph represents Hashem. Where does sin come from? How can a person sin? Because he forgets the aleph. The aleph is there, but it's silent. When a person forgets that everything has an aleph, everything has a divine spark, everything has a divine purpose, and you take things at face value, that there's this struggle, and there's this conflict between good and evil, and you take it at, you take it at face value, then you're overwhelmed by the darkness, and you succumb to the darkness. And then we feed the darkness. By succumbing to the darkness, we, 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 we feed and, and we strengthen the darkness. But when a person remembers the Aleph, then a person, a person avoids sin. And the truth is that the very conflict itself is ultimately a godly phenomenon. The fact that within one person resides good and evil is, is an unbelievable phenomenon. It makes no sense. How can good and evil be together? It's opposite. You know, in a spiritual world, everything has a very defined boundary. Two plus two is four, occupies one space. Three plus three is six, occupies a different space. Three times nine occupies a different space. And the two spaces do not, do not meet. Everything has, every idea, every concept has its world, its space. In, in a spiritual realm, good is good and evil is evil. And the two do not mix. The idea that in, within one human being, we should have a divine soul that's pulling us in one direction. And we have an animal soul, a natural soul, an ego soul that's pulling us in a different direction. That alone is the greatest divine phenomenon. A question. Um, you know, good and evil are, are concepts, and it seems to me that you know, if there were absolutely no evil, you know, what would good be? There'd, there'd be no good either. So in a way, having good and evil, you know, or having some evil in everything, or every person having some evil, you know, en- enables the good. Okay, you know, that sounds logical, but it's not true. Um, That's what the philosophers say. Um, And they call it enlightenment. When a philosopher reaches, when a human person reaches a point that he's enlightened and he realizes that without good, without evil, there's no good. Without pain, there's no joy. Without death, there is no life. And therefore, why mourn death? Why be sad over death? It's just a part of life, an inseparable part of life. You can't have one without the other. Just like you can't have right without left, up without down. You can't have life without death. You can't have joy without anguish. You can't have light without shadow. So too, you can't have good without evil. And that's an enlightened state. 
Judaism calls it an darkened state. When a person doesn't mourn over death because he's so open-minded and he's so philosophical that he realizes that death is part of life and looks down at the masses, as Karl Marx say, I'm not going to quote him, that the masses are, etc. Um, that's, the masses know something about life that totally eludes the intellectuals and the mystics. And the masses are more in touch with truth than all these intellectuals and enlightened mystics. And that is, from a logical point of view, you're right. It makes sense. You can't have one without the other. So why would a person, why this instinct that everyone cries over death, that death is such a tragedy, it's like tearing, it's like tearing a living, it's just a tragedy. Death should really be a very natural part of life. You go to sleep, you live a long life, you say goodbye to your loved ones, lay down, go to sleep and say goodbye. Why is death so traumatic? And this is the gut natural instinct, universally, across the board. Death is such a trauma. Why do we struggle to overcome evil? What's the purpose of overcoming evil? You can't have one without the other. You can never, if you totally overcome evil, then good, good will become meaningless. Well, I wasn't saying that you know, we should tolerate evil because you need it for, to make the good. I'm just saying that... You know, but, but I'm just taking your point to the logical conclusion, but why not? If you can't have one without the other, so why dream of a world that's perfect? Dream of a world that's perfect, a world without death, a world without evil, a world without pain, a world without shadow. That's the world of Mashiach. That's the world that the Jew dreams towards and yearns towards and, and, and dedicates his life to accomplish. It seems like a pipe dream. It seems like a delusion. What's the point of dreaming something that can't happen and that's ridiculous? What's the, what kind of world is that? It's like dreaming a world that all there is is right. Without left, there's no right. Without up, there's no down. Without shadow, there's no light. Without good, without evil, there's no good. Without death, there's no life. And yet, instinctively, naturally instinctively, most people dream of this world. People are horrified by evil and they fight evil. People don't accept pain. People don't accept death. So the Eastern mystics and the philosophers who call themselves the enlightened ones really look down at the masses, that this is part of ignorant, ignorant human behavior. A person who's enlightened, a person who's spiritually enlightened, is, you know, looks, looks at death with, with equanimity and suffering with equanimity and realizes the futility of fighting suffering. You have to accept suffering. And you have to accept death. And you have to be, make peace with it. Nirvana, just make peace. Don't try to change reality, just make peace with reality. Realize that it's all relative. And that is a logical position. But the Jew has a different position. Why? Because the Jew is connected with the absolute essence of God. God is reality. God doesn't need anything outside of himself to define himself by. It's not a relative reality. God is Therefore, if you believe in an absolute God, you also believe in absolute life. Not the absolute vodka, but absolute life. You believe in absolute good. You believe in absolute joy. Joy, absolutely, without any shadow or negativity or pain to define it. It doesn't need anything outside of it to define it. Absolute joy. Perfection. And we all dream of this perfection. When it comes to our health, we dream of perfection. Even though, again, it's not a logical position. 
What's the point of being perfectly healthy? Nobody is perfectly healthy. If, if there was never any aches or pains, what's the meaning of being healthy? But it's all logical, and logically everything is relative, but we know God, God is not an abstraction. Every human being knows God with Yekishkes, with every fiber, every being, every bone in our body. And it's a Jew's mission, because a Jew is connected, it's a Jew's mission to reveal how every human being is connected with God, and every human being knows God, with every, every, every part of them. God is not an abstraction. And that's why universally the masses respond to death across the board the same way, as a tra- traumatic event, as a tragedy. Because deep down we know that there's a reality where there's absolute life without any death. When Hashem created the world, there was only life, there was no death. When Mashiach will come, God will abolish death forever. And there'll be the resurrection. Those who died will be resurrected. There won't be any death. Death is a completely unnatural phenomenon. And so too is evil. And so too is pain and suffering. And that's why a Jew prays to Hashem. Unlike all other religions that are fatalist and accept pain and suffering, a Jew fights. And God wants us to fight. Because we know that something is wrong when there's pain and suffering. Something is wrong with this picture. The picture is crooked. Something very wrong with this whole picture. A world with this death and this pain and this tragedy. The picture is crooked. Because we're hardwired with a picture of the way things should be. When you see a painting that's crooked, there's no way in the world you're going to make the painting even more crooked. You're going to make it straight. Why? Because the fact that it bothers you that it's crooked means that you already have a vision of the way it should be and it bothers you that it's off. The fact that death bothers us, the fact that pain bothers us, the fact that evil bothers us is because we're hardwired. We have a picture, a vision of perfection. And this is hardwired into every human being. Just the Jew is conscious of it. The Jew makes the connection. And our mission is to ignite, to reveal that each and every human being, six billion people created in the image of God, also hardwired with the reality of God. And no, God from the inside out with their kishkes. It's not an abstraction. It's reality. It's their reality. A very heartfelt reality. Because we know God. God is perfect. Absolute. And that's why the only way to achieve, the only way to accomplish, to resolve this conflict is only by a total, total triumph, a total transformation that affects every part of us. Because ultimately all there is is the absolute reality of Hashem. And that reality will be revealed in this world. And when that reality is revealed, when God created the world, the absolute reality of Hashem, of God, was, was revealed in this world. That's why Adam and Chava were programmed to live forever, until they sinned. And when Mashiach will come, the absolute reality of God will be completely manifest and revealed in the most tangible way in this world. Every one of us will know God, personally, individually, with our kishkes, with every fiber of our being, every bone in our body. And we'll only know from absolute life, absolute joy, absolute goodness, without any shadows, without any pain, without any death, without any evil whatsoever. This is what chapter 9 is telling us one of the most powerful chapters in the Tanya and it's a revolutionary way of understanding this whole conflict of good and evil the Jewish way resolving it the Jewish way when you do an error a sin and then you're done and you realize and you say you're not going to do it again because they see what what it was for why do you do it again? (laughs) a million dollar question it's habits the path of least resistance. You know, we get, we get used to something. You do it a few times. No, but you have a moment when you look at it and you say, this was stupid. It's stupid. And you're ashamed and you're embarrassed. Yeah, the whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> and how quickly, how quickly we forget. <laughs> we can, yeah. 
you know, with every passing day, you know, the Yetzirah also gets stronger. With every, every, every meal that we add to our life. You're kidding. It gets, and the older you get, the stronger it gets? It feels, it, it feels more comfortable. You know, it's not a guest oh, anymore. It feels very comfortable. It's, it, it, it's like a guest that overstays. It's, it starts bossing you around. You know? The Zohar tells us that we know that the godly soul is a deeply caring soul. It cares about us. It feels things very deeply. It's very deeply sensitive. The godly soul believes in the moral universe that everything that happens in this world is right and is wrong and that everything matters and it really makes a difference and is trying to do the right thing. Versus the ego soul, or the natural soul, seems to be promoting a carefree life and um, its picture of the universe appears to be an immoral or amoral universe. It doesn't matter and no one cares, and live as you please, and just live for the moment, enjoy the moment. It seems to be a very indifferent universe, a very uncaring universe. And the soul seems to be very uncaring, because it's promoting a lifestyle that throws caution to the wind, doesn't think about consequences, enjoy the moment, and don't think ahead, and don't think, is this really going to make me feel good inside, or is just the momentary pleasure. But the Zohar reveals to us that in truth, animal soul, the ego, is also a very deeply caring and a very deeply sensitive soul. A person who lives as they please, there's no boundaries, there's no red lines, is a very superficial person, a very skinny person, a person who has no depth, no character. Um, a person is defined not by what you do, it's by, by what you don't do, by what you want to. That's what really defines a person. So the purpose of this temptation is really just a test. And the animal soul, the ego, really cares very deeply. It puts up, it's almost like a, it's part of the con. It puts up a front of being careless and different. And, you know, people reach a point where they stop caring and they just stop feeling and stop caring and stop, um, almost become numb to any real emotion to any real, real, real feeling and just abandon themselves to a lifestyle without restraint. But the truth is, don't be fooled for a moment. The truth is that deep down there's a very, there's a very, there's a depth of caring. Even, even in your animal soul, your ego soul, it bothers, it bothers you and it troubles you. Not just it troubles your godly soul, but it even troubles your animal soul. Because deep down, this is not what it's about. The animal soul doesn't want you to fail, doesn't want you to indulge, doesn't want you to surrender to him. The animal soul wants you to be strong. You can't show it. But the truth is that deep down, um, the, the, the animal soul, the Yetzirah, cares very deeply and is praying for your success. So this changes your whole view of this universe. Instead of looking at the world as being a cold and different place, no one cares, just live as you please, nothing matters, just indulge, live in the moment. Who cares, who's going to remember, what difference does it make, we're insignificant. Nothing could be further than the truth. Because every part of us cares very deeply. And even the negative forces, what appears to be negative, is creating this obstacle and pulling us 
in the wrong direction, deep down, even the ego cares very deeply and wants you to do the right thing. And that's why when you do the right thing, it feels like a million dollars. As difficult as it was, the fun tsar agra, according to the difficulty, is the reward. And not only is your godly soul satisfied, but even your animal soul is also satisfied. Because that was the purpose. That's all it wanted. It wants you to be strong. It wants you to do the right thing. It wants you to be whole. And it's sad. When, when a person does the wrong thing, it's sad. You know, even animals, after they, uh, after they eat their prey or they tear apart a living thing, they have a feeling of, a feeling of, a certain feeling of regret. There's a certain, you know, it, it doesn't give them a good feeling. The fact that this world is a jungle and it's a dog-eat-dog world, today, it wasn't always like this. When God created the world, it was a garden of Eden. It was not a jungle. In, in Noah's Ark, all the animals got along with each other. It was not a jungle. But the fact that today, today the world is a jungle is just a reflection of the inner jungle inside of us. It, even the animals don't feel good about it. It's not a natural state. It's not a normal state. So when a person does the wrong thing, deep down, it doesn't feel right. Like, uh, someone told a rabbi I know, you know, he lives a certain lifestyle for the last 40, 50 years. And he says, you know, I've never gotten used to it. You would think after living, abandoning and just, just living a life without any restraints and doing as one pleases, you would think that he would get used to it. And he, and he confessed that it's not true. At some level, you never get used to it. You can never get used to it. It never feels right. Even though you're doing it for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. If something is wrong, it's wrong. And it doesn't only bother your godly soul. Ultimately, it even bothers your, your ego soul. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel natural. It's not a natural fit. It's an alienating. It alienates you from yourself. You just, you just numb out. And that's why we need so many distractions. That's why today everything is so loud. 24-7 distractions. Because if a person would hear his inner voice, even for a moment... You just couldn't live this type of life. So you have to constantly drown out. Don't stop for a moment. No time to reflect. No time to really connect inside. How, how do I really feel? How, is, how does this really make me feel? Because if you listen to that voice, that inner voice, not just of your godly soul, but if you listen to the depth of even your natural soul, you would discover that this is not the life you want to live. When God created the world, this entire world was a garden of Eden. The entire world was divine, was godly. God felt at home in this world because being godly is the most natural thing in the world. And it feels that way. When you lead a godly lifestyle, a wholesome lifestyle, you think like a Jew and speak like a Jew and act like a Jew and spell down in the, in the, in the, in the Torah, it feels great. And the proof is in the pudding. The Jewish people, we've survived for 3,800 years. This works. Every Jew that's alive today because our ancestors, without any interruption for 3,800 years, every Jew can trace back a parent, a grandparent, great-grandparent, was observant, lived a wholesome life with great dedication, and great, many times great self-sacrifice. But it works in the real world. It feels good, it's wholesome, and it's satisfying. It's really satisfying. Once a person overcomes the hurdle and withstands the test and has the courage of conviction and has, musters the strength to do the right thing, it feels great, it feels wonderful. So this is, this is the key insight in Judaism 
that it's not just the divine soul that wants to do the right thing. And the ego soul is, is hopelessly uh, against us. And the ego soul is hopelessly opposed and against us. But the truth is that ultimately, even the ego soul is really rooting for our success, our spiritual success. It can't reveal it. Overtly, there's no sign of it overtly, but deep down, in, a, in its innermost recesses, the ego soul wants us to do the right thing. And this is very encouraging. When you realize that this world is a friendly place, it appears to be a hostile place, how can you live a Jewish lifestyle when everything in the world is arrayed against it? The culture and, and uh, the constant exposure and distraction. The truth is, don't be fooled. Nothing could be further than the truth. Everything in this world is really arrayed to help us. Everything in this world is really trying to help us, each one in its own way. Some by testing us, by forcing us to be strong, by helping discover our true character, inner character, and developing that character, and others by overtly helping us. But everything in this world is here to help us, because we live in a very deeply moral universe, where the entire universe really cares very deeply about our behavior. It doesn't show it. It appears to be cold and different, but nothing could be further than the truth. As the story with Avram Avinu, when Avram, it says Avram looked out at the world, today's Torah portion, read about Avram, and he cried out. He saw that the Medrash says, like he saw a palace on fire. And he cried out, he says, is there no owner to this, to this palace? Ain balabayit libirazu, there's no owner to this palace. And the Midrash says that the owner of the palace, God revealed himself to Avram, like the owner of the palace stuck his head out the window, and he says, what do you mean there's no owner to this palace? I'm the owner to this palace. It appears to be on fire, it appears to be out of control, it appears to be chaotic. But God says, I am in control of this palace. Here's the answer to Avram's question. Avram had a question, a trouble. And God says, I am the owner to this palace. It doesn't answer, the fire is still raging. How does that answer Avram's question? God is telling Avram, that you're not alone in the universe. Hashem felt Avram's question, what was troubling him, and he responded. So the fact that Hashem responded to Avram's personal question, even though it was deep in his soul, it was in his own mind, he never voiced it, it was just he was thinking and wondering, and Hashem responded. That's the best response. That is the response. You're not alone. You don't live in a vacuum. Everything you feel, everything you think, everything you speak, everything you do is felt. It registers. It matters. Hashem feels it instantly, and, he, and Hashem cares. So despite appearances, we live in a very... It appears to be like a jungle, and the palace is on fire. But the truth is that we live in a very deeply moral universe. And everything we do matters, and it's a very caring universe. And it's not only that God cares, but the whole universe cares. Because it's only for the benefit. It's not only... It's for the benefit of the universe, for the benefit of the ego souls, for the benefit of everyone involved, that the Jew be strong, and the Jew do the right thing. Anti-Semitism is just the non-Jew's funny way of telling the Jew, reminding the Jew, please get your act together. Because until you do, we're all going to suffer. Because when the Jew has his act together, then the world becomes a moral place, a stable place, a wholesome place, a place, a garden of Eden. To be continued. Mm-hmm.